I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now you're very welcome along to a Saturday edition of the Huddle Breakdown. Enda here with James and Alan as we look back on two games and look ahead to the Hearts game tomorrow at 12 o'clock. There is also big news in terms of Celtic this week, or potentially big news. We're going to hash out whether it means anything or not. But Mark Lawwell and Joe Dudgeon have left the club. So that is uh, Celtic's first team scout and uh, his compatriot, Mark Lawwell, is uh, they are gone out of the club. So we're going to be hashing out whether or not that means anything in the long-term strategy of the club and uh, what that means in terms of the power struggle that's going on at Celtic Park this season. Alan James, how are you? Happy weekend. I never see it to see us at the weekend. It's kind of freaky, you know? It's like I'm, I'm interrupting your, your you time. Yeah, still got, you know, pajamas on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're interrupting my Saturday morning cartoons. I, I was watching Bugs Bunny about uh, <laughs> ten minutes ago, so this is very annoying. Yeah, put your cocoa pops away, then we'll we'll get into the real uh, nitty gritty of Celtic Football Club. Uh, well, I, I guess we'll start with the news in that Mark Lawwell and Joe Dudgeon have left the club. Um, this comes off the back of the January transfer window. I think that's very very blatant in the statements that have been made so far. Um, Chris Sutton has described it as them falling on the sword for the failings of the transfer window of, of January. Um, Alan, I mean, we, we've, we've spoken about this like for the last four or five years of the huddle breakdown, well before Mark Lawwell was at the club as well. But like the first team scout and um, the the people who are involved in bringing players to the club, it's been a very complicated, convoluted uh, strategy that seems to be going on here and um, now it would seem that they are getting the blame for the failings of the transfers so the club seemed to be laying it at their door that they were responsible for the players coming in and Brennan Rogers was just working with what they give him so that's where I'm reading this but I'm not sure if that's necessarily true yeah it's, it's difficult to say um, we we did if people remember when when Ange Postecoglou was hired on the show, news on the topic of um, is the club turning into a, a modern version of a football club or did we just get lucky with Ange? And I think the answer to that is clear. We just got lucky with Ange. And as soon as Ange left, you know, the semblance of being a modern football club behind the scenes seemed to, um, to be, uh, you know, 
very little evidence of that. Um, there was, to, in my mind, always doubts that Mark Lowell actually was doing a job that he was qualified to do, <laughs> which I can't say any less bluntly than that in terms of what was his actual role at Man City, what was his day or his day to day operational responsibilities versus that of being being the head of recruitment at Celtic. Um, and by any token, you know, that hasn't been successful. But then I'm still sceptical that whether getting rid of these two individuals will actually change that or not, to be honest with you, because it's, it's, it's unsuccessful for other more uh, inherent reasons within the club. Um, you know, it takes a team of people to do this well and it takes a team of talented people to do it well. Um, so, yeah, no, no surprise. I, I'll, I was actually told on the 1st of February that this was going to happen, and I've kept shtum, <laughs> as I was asked to do. So, so there you go. So, uh, no, no great surprise in this. Um, I don't, the timing's a bit odd, I think, um, in terms of you know. But then again, I suppose at least you could say, well, get new new people in uh, before the the summer. Um, but again, I'll hold fire on that because I'd, I'd like to see the whole ideology strategy thing you know, um, thought leadership, let's call it that, of the club in terms of this crucial activity. You know, where's that coming from and, and what is it? Uh, because that's the bit I'm still sceptical about, really. Mm. James, if this was, if Celtic Football Club over the last couple of years was filmed like Succession, this would probably be the season finale or at least the penultimate episode of uh, season two or three. I mean, it, this is really Mark Lawwell and Do- Joe Dudgeon taking the dive, taking the hit for what was the recruitment process over the last couple of years. And interestingly enough, there was also a little snipe at Ange Postacoglu in the statement that was made in the club laying uh, Mark Lawwell's hire at his door. Um, and that may well be true. I- I believe it actually was true that it was Ange that looked for Mark Lawwell to come to the club. So the club are very much distancing themselves from this as the power struggle for who has the the biggest macho man muscles in the boardroom or at the club goes on. I, I mentioned back sometime in December, I think, that if the January window did not go as we had hoped it would, that we might be looking at a sort of civil war <laughs> within football operations, uh, the way things appear to be lining up. That, you know, that's overstating it a bit, but um, that seems to be what has manifested. And one side has won the war <laughs> in, in, to a degree. And that appears to be Brendan Rodgers. Um, that's how I would read this. And if you look at even just some of the reporting and, you know, again, hear some buzz. Um, but you know, there, there were players being presented to Rogers. Um, Araujo was probably the most prominently reported. I suspect there were others that, um, the recruitment team had brought to him and said, Hey, let's sign these people. Uh, it was again, pretty well reported and sourced that Araujo was well down the line, um, in getting signed. That was the, the, I think it was the Portuguese, uh, left back. And um, play, playing at Estoril, if I recall, and um, that Rogers basically vetoed it pretty late in the stage. Um, so I think it seems to me, and again, I'm reading between the lines, what was happening was that following the summer window, which I think most people would agree that it didn't go very well, 
um, where Rogers was relatively passive, that he started to get more directly involved, was not happy with the level of quality of players being brought to him. Um, as a result, basically vetoed a bunch of them. <clears throat> and they tried to patch together some players that Rogers liked sometime in the autumn into January. And when you're dealing with a relatively small number of potential signings, you know, you're not taking a, a holistic um, approach to the process, you know, Rogers, the guys Rogers knows is not going to be a database that's <laughs> um, that large. And, you know, trying to get those people signed in January is not easy uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about and that are well known about that window and, and specifically to this window. So I, I think it was just a cluster F of these factors. Um, and, you know, I think understandably, given how poor the last two in particular have gone, something had to change. I don't like, you know, again, this this goes to me again, this is about Dermot Desmond. This is, you know, or likely about Dermot Desmond. Um, th this is actually moving more towards the gravitational force of manager's God um, that we've talked about over and over. Uh, so this is reverting back towards giving Ange and his agent all of the power. So now are we just substituting Ange for Brendan? You know, that seems to me the direction and the idea that we're going to patch together a robust uh, recruitment infrastructure ahead of the summer's window between now and, you know, what's probably got to be April 1st to do it the right way <laughs> is, you know, or even a, a, a reasonable way is, uh, you know, a tall tall order. So uh, we, we may be looking at something similar to what it pivoted towards in January, which is guys Brendan knows and likes, um, but in a window that will be less difficult to, to deal in. Yeah. Well, according to reports in Ireland, Adam Ida was a Brendan Rogers signing that as yeah, soon as I mean, he, as soon as he became available or Rogers was told he was going to be available he was someone that he went after. And look, that might look like a masterstroke if Adam Ida keeps scoring goals the way he's scoring goals. And if he develops in the way that, you know, some uh, some of the underage coaches within Ireland that have worked with him closely and even the Irish coaches um, who've worked with him, if he can, continues to develop that way, then yeah, he could, could be a potential brilliant item for Celtic. But if he continues to be a bit part player who has niggly injuries, can't get any form falls out of confidence, et cetera, et cetera, as he has done throughout his career so far, then that could be a disaster of a signing. So it's sort of a coin flip scenario as opposed to a strategic one. Um, my final question on this before we move on to actual football is um, in terms of the summer. So now Celtic not only need obvious replacement within the squad, they need to buy in some good scouts and uh, head of recruitment. Um, the... Recent books were fairly uh, healthy, Alan, to put it lightly, let's say. Um, at the minute, so let's just say in the world of football directors, because that seems to be where football, modern football is going, where there's almost a transfer window for these guys now. Uh, the likes of Dan Ashworth, who is going to United from Newcastle United, Manchester United from Newcastle, from Newcastle United, he's going to cost them around 20 million. And he, he's the top, he's the top, top guy. He's the guy that everybody wants right now. He's going to cost 20 million. So, like, in the real world, Celtic should be spending about 
10 million for their header recruitment here, right? To get the best guy possible because that will save them from spending little bits of money all the time over a long period of time. It's sort of like false economy where you buy loads of little shitty things from the pound shop and they break all the time. So you have to continue to buy more as opposed to buying buying right once. So that's where I think Celtic should go. Instead of putting aside 50 million on a transfer budget, maybe put 40 million towards the transfer budget and then a good chunk of money towards getting the right head of recruitment. But I, somehow I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I, you know, I agree with the principle of what you're saying. And I've always said this, that, and especially if you look at Celtic's books, the club is in a position to have not just very good, and I take your point about if it's cost you 20 million for head of recruitment, then even non-playing um, skills skills are, are becoming inflated in the market. But Celtic should be able to have a world-class scouting and network. But you put Dan, this Dan Ashworth character, you put him into a dysfunctional club with bickering executives and, 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 a, and, a, and a shallow talent pool of people working under him. He's not going to succeed. I don't care whether he's cost 20 million, 30 million or... One million, right? So, the fundamental point is to have a talent pool of people doing the work, and it doesn't have to be too many, but it's got to be consistent. It's got to be, um, you know, strongly on message, on strategy, clear vision, clear goals, with a decent budget. And it's not even about budget. You know, it's about talent and finding the best people to do that and fitting them together and, and giving them the space organisationally and giving them the support organisationally. That providing they're doing the job, then you're happy with it and the, and the parameters are all clear. That's what Celtic need to do. Um, you know, I, I agree with what James is saying. I think it can also be true at the same time that the people we had in these roles weren't very good, right? So it wasn't just a case of, oh, well, this model, you know, lol and Dudgeon failed because um, the club wants to give um, Rogers all the power. I don't necessarily believe that that can be the case. I mean, in a senior role like that in any business, and this is what I was kind of hearing was, you know, oh, it's just really difficult to do business in this window. And, and I get that, right? It was a tough environment because of, you know, the F, FSR considerations closed down a lot of the English market. The English market tends to fuel the European market to a large extent. Um, you know, players not wanting to come to Scotland, especially when you get into the more talented, higher higher earner sort of wedge brackets. That is true. Um, you know, all, all, the, all that, right? But for you to essentially say, oh, I can't do my job because it's too difficult, which is essentially when you boil it down what they were saying. It's just, it's just not good enough for a club like Celtic, or it, sh- it shouldn't be. So I, I accept that, you know, we don't want to move to a model whereby it's it's Brendan Rodgers and whoever's the next manager and whoever whatever players they happen to know. Um, and and then I, I also agree with you that we need to actually put some money aside to say, right, and it, but it isn't necessarily about money. It's about strategy. It's about organisation. It's about roles, responsibilities. It's about vision. And it's about leadership. All these things have to be lined up, as it don't matter who you put in to these roles and how much you pay them, frankly, if you don't have all those things lined up. So that's what, it, that's what the club needs to get clear. Stop this bickering internally and get lined up behind what this project should be. Well, and that's this is partly why uh, I've, I've talked about, and I know Alan has too, and, and agrees with this, is that the, the key role in all of this has been one of architect. Who, who's going to build the organization and the structures and the culture in order to facilitate what needs to happen competitively? And in fairness to Dudgeon and, and Mark Lawwell, 
you know, they appear to have been plugged in to a structure that they did not design. So this is why I thought it didn't make sense to begin with, which is you're going to lift out these guys from City, City Finance uh, Football Group, and think that they're going to be able to replicate what they're doing at City Financial Group or fo- a football group as if, you know, it's just some easy thing to transfer. It, it, they don't ha- Celtic doesn't have the scouting network, doesn't have the uh, the financial resources, doesn't have an astrophysicist that's designed their analytics department. Like they, they, you know, it's just a completely different animal. And, you know, there was some reporting that there were some very specific market uh, parameters put on what they were shopping in, i.e. 23 and under, less than 5 million transfer and X range in wage bill. And, you know, is that, um, I, I agree with Al, like, okay, we'll deal with it, right? Do your job within the, if that's the parameters that you're given, you should still be able to do a good job within that. But that's, right, that's a relative, that's an architecture that's being pushed down on them by somebody. I think we have a pretty good guess of who those people are. Um, and does that make sense? And, you know, I retweeted something, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, about, um where the market has moved and uh, the likelihood is that that sub 23 age group is getting picked over now is being incredibly competitive. Big. We've talked about this in recent months, you know, the Brightons of the world, the Brentfords, you know, that have big money that are going into the 17 to 19 to 21 year old uh, markets and buying up all the five to 7 million uh, or even 3 million. And we can't compete with those clubs because of what they offer relative to pathways and um, uh, and, and getting into the English Premier League. So, and even you know the wages that they can pay, that kind of thing. So that the the inefficiency now is almost the neglected middle aged players, you know. Um, so this is again back to who's who's the strategist, who's really smart about navigating things, and you know. I don't think we have that person still. So we we're constantly chasing our tail in a reactionary bad architecture. And, you know, this is where until that architect comes in and stays and is empowered, it's probably going to just be more of the same. Yeah. I think um, it's quite similar to like the Red Bull scenario of the coaches that come through the Red Bull system um, and even some of the players once they leave the Red Bull system, a lot of them have looked quite incompetent. But that doesn't mean they were bad coaches the entire time. That just means they've gone to another club where they don't have the same systems in place. And if you don't have the same systems in place, then they're, what they're good at isn't available for them to thrive in, in those so sort of organizations. Th- th- this is probably the most fundamental aspect of the analytics revolution, you know, the data revolution in sport is the degree to which coaches have been overvalued historically. The role of managers. Now, when your manager is God and you're picking the players and all that stuff, so that's the arbitrage, is that you you basically, you know, you segment these roles and the decisions and do them at a high level uh, rather than having one person do all this crap and they might be a great head coach. They might be a great tactician, but maybe they're not great at picking players or managing budgets or managing human beings and all that stuff. So the whole idea is specialization. And again, I'm I'm just explaining what it is. I'm not saying I like it or dislike it. That's the reality of the clubs that are successful. And that's what you're seeing. 
you know, look, look at what happened at Brighton um, uh, when they, what was his name, went to Chelsea and then they brought in uh, Saturday morning. Deserby. Um, I, I, I still have Saturday morning brain. I haven't had my second coffee yet. So, you know, these guys that come into some of these clubs that are well run, you know, you even look at Casado uh, at Brighton and then he goes to Chelsea, right? So there's almost a laundering that can go on <laughs> with players and talent. If you're set up well, the dumb money is going to keep buying this stuff from you that don't understand the attribution of why the engine is working. Um, and that's, you know, this is what I've been saying for a while. We're dumb money. And that that's, we, we're not, we're not doing a smart job in allocating resources and figuring out all these kind of um, modern attribution aspects. Um, and that's, so the, that, that's all the, you know, kind of the dour view. The, the positive view is even within this context, and we saw this with Ange, I mean, the last two windows, and I left, particularly the summer window, was catastrophically bad like to a degree that is just unbelievable. Um, so any change, even if it's back towards a manager as God, <laughs> is probably going to be better than what we had, um, at least initially, because again, he's going to cherry pick like Ange did <laughs> early in his uh, tenure, um, people that we can get that he knows. So we're, we're probably, you know, we still have some cherry picking to do this summer maybe. Um but it's not durable, likely. It's not long term, any of those other issues. But at least for the summer, hopefully it could be, you know, uh, better than what we've had. Yeah. No, I, d- I definitely do. Uh, just to, as we move away from this, I definitely do think it um, it should be one or the other. It can't be, you know, 60% in this model, 40% in this model. It needs to be either it's Brendan Rogers who picks the players who he wants to get in and he has a team of people that bring those players in. Or it's the recruitment team that do it for the club and he has to work within the structures that the club has in place to future profit. And if you're doing manager as God, do it in three-year cycles, you know? You plan for the fact that it's manager as God. Plan for the fact that within three years, we're going to need to rebuild the squad because this manager's not going to be here and we're going to need a new manager who's going to be the next manager and then already start working on that. You can't have it both ways or have one foot in each camp without, you know, going full in on, on, on either of them. Because what, what you end up with is the likes of Yang, et cetera, joining the club and Brendan Rogers coming and thinking, well, these guys are clearly not up to the standard that I want. So I'm going to bring in Adam Eda in, in the January transfer window, all known. So uh, we'll move past that. Oh, sorry. sorry Alan, go ahead. Yeah. To be sorry. To be fair, I don't. I think the club was trying to implement the model that we probably prefer to see. It's just that we recruited really badly into the key roles, right? So, so if the will is there, I don't. I don't think Brendan Rodgers want in, in throughout his career. You've seen this. I don't think he wants to be the head of recruitment. I don't think he wants to be spending his days talking to agents, right? He wants to be on the training pitch. So, um, I think, I hope, and I believe, based on that, we will go. You know, we will continue to get work towards a model where the recruitment team do what they do and the manager works with them. Uh, we just need to recruit better. We need better talent in those key positions. Because, you know, to, to me, how catastrophic was was it? You've got to think with Celtic, especially domestically, there's a huge margin for error here in recruitment, right? A huge margin for error. And if you can't find wingers that can dominate SPFL-level opposition, you are not good at your job. And that's, that's the end of it as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. So we'll move on to actual on-the-pitch action. Uh, we're not going to be all doom and gloom on the podcast this week, I promise, um, because we do have we do have two two wins to talk about, one be- slightly better than the other, let's be honest. Uh, 3-1 win over Motherwell in the depth. Adam Ida pulling it out of the bag in the second half with a, a really lovely header, and it has to be said that that second goal that he scored was actually really, really good as well. Um, so... We'll talk about that, and we're also going to be talking about the 7-1 hammering of Dundee. So, uh, to sum it all up, James, uh, Celtic are back. Uh, we're going to win the league. Everything has changed, and uh, we just have the winning formula now to keep battering teams until the end of the season. Is that – that's that's right, right? Certainly possible. Um, <laughs> I think what we saw this past week – was uh, a combination of some tweaks, meaning that the the you know dropping Kyogo to go to Adamita, you know either substitution at halftime at Motherwell or uh, from the, the beginning on Wednesday um, against Dundee. That you know that's a move. That's a material uh, significant change by the manager in the composition of, of uh, the squad at a very important position. Obviously, Yang coming in and doing well uh, in both games has been impactful. But I think the majority of what occurred in the last two games is positive uh, variance, um, and particularly as it relates to uh, crossing and resulting shots. Uh, so I, I pulled some data for this. I told you guys I was going to do this. So, you know, on brand. So prior to um, the game on on Sunday at Motherwell, in whatever number of games that is before that, I can't do the math that quick, 23 games, whatever, um, we had 14.29 uh, cumulative XG on shots from crosses, okay? That's, that's, that's XG. That's the quality of the chances in cumulative on 85 shots. Uh the post-shot XG was 12.72. So that means our finishing on these wasn't great. And I think, you know, that aligns with the eye test, probably how we all feel about the season. You know, we've got a lot of uh, kind of aerial sitters that have been missed, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that aligns pretty well. Only nine goals. Okay. So again, that's that piece that I talk about relative to uncontrollable risk, which is how well are opposition keepers keeping the ball out. And that happened to have fallen in crosses disproportionately so far of the season where opposition keepers have done a good job. Um, and again, I, I did it on a unit basis on a per shot basis. So the post shot XG per shot was 0.489 and uh, the XG per shot was 0.168. Okay. Post shot XG is always of higher than, than pre-shot obviously. Cause you know, the majority of shots aren't on target. So in the last two games, we've had 15 sh- shots off of crosses for 2.48 in XG 2.96 in post-shot XG. So again, whereas we had finishing that was materially negative combined with uh, good opposition keeper play. Now we've got, you know, decent finishing um, that's improving the quality of the chance and we had four goals. Okay. So again, small sample, it's 15 shots, but generally speaking, uh, the opposition keepers didn't do a great job at saving any of these. The, uh, post shot, uh, XG per shot was 0.37. So again, that compares to 0.489. So the average quality of the shots were actually lower than they've been, even though these other two factors, uh, float in and the, 
uh, average chance was actually pretty much the same, 0.166. So when I deconstruct all of that, this is why I say, to me, it looks like, generally speaking, variance. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't swing back the rest of the season, right? So that's it absolutely could happen because, as I said, our finishing was, wasn't great. Maybe Ida is a better aerial finisher, for example, at Stryker. Um, maybe that's sustainable. I don't know. I haven't seen enough of of him, and I don't have any kind of data to to analyze on that historically. Um, so it's plausible, you know, given his athleticism and size, it's it's possible. Um, maybe Yang is gonna has turned a corner, and all of a sudden is going to be a more consistent crosser of the ball at higher quality. That kind of thing, again, plausible. He's shown this kind of volatility uh, in his tenure already where he can have these great games and whip great crosses in. And then the next game, he looks like he doesn't, you know, he has two left feet, that kind of thing. So I, I so I think if I, if it, if I have a guess and analysis is it's likely um, more to do with variance with a slight positivity. I mean, that maybe if we stick with Ida, that um, there's some upside there that would, would help us the rest of the season. But the other inherent part to all this is that aerial crosses in particular are quite volatile. Um, so you're, you're, when you're dealing with just, you know, uh, 11 or 12 games left, whatever's left now. Um, Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, that can swing quite violently. You get a windy day. <laughs> you get... uh you know, you get a team that's much better defensively than Dundee, for example. Dundee is atrocious defensively um, overall. So, you know, those kind of factors. So that's my that's my analysis for 
On the striker situation, Alan, and this is all related to crosses as well, what 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 has changed in the reasoning for Adamita to let's I'm not I'm not gonna go as far as saying thriving, but at least being successful within the system and Kyogo, who has broken the twenty goal mark the last two seasons, who can't seem to get into the, the squad right now. So like for me it's startling that Celtic's best player for the last two years has fallen off a cliff this season. And somebody who has failed to make any inroads within the Norwich setup over the last four years is seems to be having good success. So wh- why does it seem to be more suited to Adamita than Kyogo? Yeah, I mean, it's it's if you're going to have a striker who's going to thrive on almost precision-crafted attacking play, whereby you're you're ending the move with a, a low hard cross uh, across the six yard box, uh, and Kyogo absolutely thrives on that kind of service. Where however it however it is contrived and however it you know emerges, if that's the finishing uh, move, if you like, um, if if you're either not willing or not able to do that, then you know it looks like that Kyogo is going to struggle to be as productive as as. Uh, as he could be. I mean, you know, he's not a, he's not like a an Alan Shearer type striker for the for the older ones, who you know, if, if he's maybe not having a good day, he's quite happy to belt one in the top corner from thirty yards just to just to feel better and, and get, keep keep the goal tally going, type of thing. No, he you know, Google was almost precision engineered to finish off these six yard box type chances, and and mainly, I don't think we're intending not to serve him well. As I've said all season, I think it mainly comes down to the quality of the wing play to actually... And I don't just mean the wing play, I don't just mean the wingers, I mean the, the ability of the, of the team to create the scenarios that I've talked about there. So, you know, if we look at what what, what changed at Motherwell then, so so what Brendan Rodgers said, and this not my not my words, I'm paraphrasing Ben Rodgers, was that we were actually, you know, too anxious, we were too eager to get the ball forward. And this is what I've been trying to bang on about all season is that, you know, we didn't we weren't terrible in the first half against Motherwell because we were slow and ponderous and because we were passing the ball around the horseshoe. As I said on Twitter, I, I was aspiring to the horseshoe. Because if you're at least if you see the horseshoe, you're controlling the ball, you're controlling the field. We didn't do any of that. Why didn't we do any of that? Because we kept giving the ball away. Why do we keep giving the ball away? Because we keep trying ridiculously long straight through balls to try and get Kyogo on the ball earlier because he's really fast, and probably Maeda as well. And, you know, we, we, we kept rushing everything in our play. There was no composure. There was no control. It was it was how can we get the ball forward quicker? It was the antithesis of slow and ponderous, but, it, but we're just rubbish at it. What changed in the second half is we stopped trying these stupid through balls, and we actually put crosses in from, you know, the middle of the final third and on. So we were just basically trying to hit, trying to hit the front from better areas. And that's what improved. Uh, mainly, and, and we just got a bit more control of the game. We controlled the ball, we controlled the territory. You know, we, we should aspire to the horseshoe. We need to get that control back. That's what the team's been lacking. We're not controlling the game well enough. And that's the first thing. And then second of all is, and, and, and we talked about this before the Motherwell game, we, com- we completely played into their hands in terms of what was their big skill. Their big skill was that they, they, were, they weren't going to get broken on because their defenders were going to sit in a line and they're very good at the counter-attack. So what did we do? We kept coughing up the ball to Blair Spittle, who then played lovely through balls to Theo Bear. Five chances. Five chances Spittle set up in that first half. 
He had 144 pass packing score, right? He absolutely destroyed us, right? So anyway, we got control of the game in the second half. But I think what with with Ida and the team, if you don't have players capable of playing the kind of low crosses that that, that Kyogo thrives on, if it's going to be more of the good old fashioned lump it in the box type of cross, then Ida at least gives you a fighting chance of of making something from that. Uh, what I was pleased about against Dundee, um, and, I, and you know, James is absolutely right. What was if you're going to attribute? Why did the Dundee thing happen? They are terrible. I mean, to have three <laughs> to have three or four goals right in the middle of the six yard box in front of your goalkeeper, and nobody laying a glove on any Celtic player is just it's just terrible. Um, but what I did like to see was that oh, Taylor's goal was the one I really liked because you had Taylor and O'Reilly almost pushing each other out of the way to score it. Right, so. Fine. If you're gonna if you're gonna play crosses, play them from as near to the opposition goal as you can, and get people in the box. Because if you've got a player like Ida, who again scored fantastic two fantastic headers, um, who's at least going to make life difficult for the opposition, other players can feed off that if they if they also get into the box. So get more players into the box, and then more prosaically, there is no doubt that you know in that first half against Motherwell, I mean, Cal McGregor was just you know in that pushed forward position. I think he gave away more passes than he would normally give away in three full matches, right? And O'Reilly clearly was was has been off the boil. Matt O'Reilly was back to his best on against Dundee, and that that makes such a difference to this team. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. Um, so I don't think it's a case that, like as James said, Yang suddenly turned into this world-beating winger. We've seen this performance from Yang before. The home game against Aberdeen, in particular. Uh, comes to mind. And as James says, it's just as likely that the next game he's going to look like he's never played the game before. So I don't think anything's radically changed. I think, But I think with Ida in the team, if you're not going to play to keep with strength, you might as well have the big lad and you might as well get some crosses in the box. And you might as well create a bit of, att- of attacking chaos such that you you, know, you, you at least set, set an environment where some of that positive variance uh, can occur. But other than that, every game is going to be you know, a nail biter between that and the end of the season. Fundamentally, I don't think we've kind of suddenly hit on the elixir of uh, of, of of coherence. Mm. I think we just, as James said, we just got a run of good 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 finishing or good variance. Yeah, and, and, I, two, I, I two, would... and two and two really bad goalkeepers. Well, two two poor keepers, a, a really poor defensive team in in Dundee, and it, it, you know they, their ability to be where they are at in the table for the most part is because they've been exceptionally effective at finishing uh, set pieces. And fortunately, that didn't manifest against us, and it you know really wouldn't have mattered given uh, the nature of the game. You know, if they scored a couple of corners, it would have been seven, seven two or seven three. So it didn't really matter. Um, but I, I will say again, it, it's sliding scale, kind of like what I said relative to recruitment, and we, we can't be as bad. Um, you know, to, to Alan's point, we, it, it's almost like we were trying to play narrow without playing narrow. Right, that's a, a, almost an incoherence. I mean, you're trying these kind of through balls, you know, Narotsky trying to hit, um, you know, one of the eights in the seam in the half space central without kind of building around that to focus on playing narrow, right? So this goes back to Alan and I saying, well, I'll play 4 4 2 diamond or, you know, something like 4 2 uh, uh, 3 4 uh, 2 1, that kind of thing, where you've got three or four guys or even five guys central and narrow. So that if that kind of pass from Navratsky doesn't come off, you've got the packs to hunt and to win it back in in counterpressing. And I think we do counterpress very intensely. It's reflected in the data, but we're not playing narrow. So if you're trying these through balls to Kyogo or you're trying to hit, you know, uh, uh, O'Reilly with his back to goal, 
you know, in, in, in the half space, uh, in between their lines that it's always tight. And, you know, we don't have world-class center backs making those passes. Again, that's not McGregor's game really either. Uh, we, we, and it's not a Wada's game. Um, so if you're going to, if you're going to play a system wide and then create space using width to throw central and you don't have the players to do it, that's, and you do it against Motherwell, who's a good counterattacking team. Like that's how you get the first half. So a little more meat on the bone as far as what Alan's saying and going to the horseshoe, going to Ida, I I'm concerned about the variance here, but it's at least more coherent to me. So, you know, I've been counting, I've been calling for something radical. Now is dropping Kyogo radical and putting Ida in and kind of abandoning this, whatever it is we've been trying to do centrally. You know, I guess it's not as radical as I'd like, but it's at least progress. I, I could see I'm a lot more um, optimistic now if we stick to this, then I'm not sure it's going to be enough. But I, I, I would say that, you know, the, the, the left tail is getting cut off a little bit, meaning that we're going to lose the, <laughs> the league by 10 points. Right. If we were if we kept persisting like the first half of Motherwell on on um, Sunday, like that scenario, I thought was, you know, completely on the table. Well, I think it also helps that our backline looked like Alistair Johnson, Cameron Carter-Vickers, Liam Scales, and Greg Taylor, as opposed to uh, Anthony Ralston, Navrotsky, or Welsh, Liam Scales, and Berdewey. That also helps in the grand scheme of your structure and your play. Um, the I guess more, more notably than that, though, is the introduction of uh, Iwata to the midfield, pushing Cal McGregor slightly further forward. Two con- two conservative passers there, Alan. And I think the Matt O'Reilly one's an interesting one because sometimes there's just not an explanation for why someone is not playing well. And I think that's probably the case with Matt O'Reilly. I think he was just probably not playing well. Sometimes it has nothing to do with structure. Sometimes it just has to do yeah. with people not playing well. But in terms of what Awada does to the midfield with Cal McGregor, what, what have you noticed in terms of the way that Celtic play in the midfield as a result of that change? Yeah, so I mean, yeah. So on, on Matt O'Reilly, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that he's changed. I don't think he's radically different to the sort because even when we think he's not playing well, he's still pretty effective. And his his not playing well is within a fairly narrow range of performance, right? The the, the problem the problem um, has been that if Matt O'Reilly's not playing well, who is? Last season, you know, Aaron Moy stepped up, Rio Hatati stepped up. You know, somebody else stepped up, right? So if Matt O'Reilly was having a quiet game, it kind of didn't matter because the system kind of rolled on, and someone else, you know, you know, uh, got, got a good load of stats that that day, sort of thing. So I'm not, you know, I think that's been the problem. It's been the quality deficit around the the team as to who who else, if it's not Matt O'Reilly, who else is gonna is gonna really step up in that midfield? Um, I mean, Awata again, like Yang. Um, I don't think he's done anything radical. I don't think he's done anything new or different to what Iwata does. He's very, as you say, very safe on the ball. I think his anticipation and his positional sense of where balls are going to um, break and where there is danger, he's very good. Um, and he seems to anticipate uh, danger very quickly and get there. And uh, he's got the, the strength to kind of shield the ball well. You know, his recovery rate is high um, and so forth. And he's, But, you know, He's not going to suddenly ping forty-yard through balls. Right? That's, that's not never going to be his game, and not be his game. And if we're going to play a midfield with him in it, 
you know, McGregor is going to be suboptimal, you know, in a more advanced position. He isn't, he isn't that player anymore that's going to, you know, dribble past three or four defenders or get into the box and play, you know, have, have great quality shots at goal. He never has been actually in, in terms of his strengths and weaknesses. So that, that, that introduces uh, potentially risks elsewhere in terms of the overall midfield creativity. But it probably strengthens. And actually, where Celtic, have, my concern has been with Celtic, has actually been defensively. You know, our numbers this season have not been great. And as you say, having the, something like the first choice um, uh, defence in place certainly certainly helped. I mean, Alistair Johnson had one of these games against Dundee. Do you remember we had two or three matches when McGregor played left back and he completely dominated the ball from left back? It created 150 passes. That's what Johnson was like on against Dundee because Dundee played this. Five three two, very rigid, uh, no pressing, and Celtic just passed through them at absolute will. It was so easy to play through them. So everybody, you know, and, and especially on the right hand side where we had O'Reilly in form, and we had uh, Yang, you know, getting a lot of the ball, and we had O'Johnson. Johnson, I think, one hundred and twenty two passes he completed in the game. You know, set up one assist, a couple more chances that were set up, etc. So um, was that, you know, was that? Again, attribution is that Johnson hitting his best form? Yeah, it probably was. But how much it was the fact that you know Dundee were just tailor made for Celtic to to play through with ease, which which they were. So I come back to, you know, it, I don't see anything fundamentally changing. I think we've just got to hope that the, the coherence improves, and that's going to be a, a marginal thing. The, the quality of the forward play better matching the, the skill sets of the players that we have. Um, and if Iwata makes us a little bit less prone to losing on the transition and makes us a little bit more solid, that's a good thing. Again, on the margins, so I think I think I think it's positive, but it isn't the radical thing I think we'd need to do, as James says, to make us really coherent. But at least we're edging edging there uh, as we get towards the finish line. Yeah. Um, as we head towards the. I don't know why I muted myself there when your dog started barking, but I did. Um, as we head towards the Hearts game tomorrow, then at, at lunchtime, um, James, positive notes. We'll we'll look at the positives here. There's a dozen games left in the season. Celtic have key players coming back from injury. We seem to have figured out at least a little bit. Um, of the system that we think might be successful until the end of the season. If it's not the long-term game plan, I don't care. But it, it's just getting to summer now and winning the league to get Champions League next year. So I, I, I'd i be a little bit more positive about the coin flip scenario where that's going to land by the end of the year. Yeah, so I, I, had, uh, I had moved away from coin flip territory um, and I think we're back to coin flip territory. So that's, that is positive news. Like I, I, if we hadn't made the kind of adjustments that we have <clears throat> starting in the second half of, of Motherwell, um, I was, you know, pretty skewed heavily towards Rangers, unfortunately. Um, so, th- at, at, so there's that relative to the rest of the, the league campaign. And, you know, when you get into coin flip, you're talking about variance and, you know, aerial crosses, that's an issue. Uh, Hart has been very good in the last, uh, you know, two months. Will that persist? Let's hope, you know, to his credit, uh, he's been very good. Um, is that going, you know, could he have a couple of bad games? Certainly a- anyone can. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's that kind of stuff that, you know, it, 
it's right back to where we were, I'd say, kind of in in uh, early January, which is, you know, pr- probably coin flip t- territory. Uh, as it pertains specifically to hearts, so I've I've been um, commiserating, you know, with this we, we analytics uh, spreadsheet shagger community, we we stick together in some sense, and uh, so there's a hearts account that I, I DM with, and uh, we've had a back and forth recently, and I, I think hearts are the team uh most vulnerable to collapse um meaning that even with the amount of lead that they have over Colmarnik, i could see a scenario i mean it's not likely but i think you know most models would have them as like i don't know five percent chance of finishing third that kind of thing i think that's way too low like i i, I think it's probably at least four to five times that um and that's because i think the underlying ways that hearts have been uh winning games and pulling results are not necessarily sustainable. They've had a lot of positive things kind of go in their, their way. And there's quite a bit of that that may not persist, particularly, for example, they've been hugely reliant on Shanklin's finishing, um, even with his decision-making when to shoot to be, has been really poor. Right. So this goes back to decomposing, like how, how, how teams actually score. And he's just been, you know, a brilliant, he's been historically a good finisher, this season, he's been an unsustainably like messy squared level of finishing. Um, so if he goes through a period of, you know, the opposite of a purple patch, th- their kind of underlying architecture is not good. Um, so I could, you know, now the flip side of that is we're going to Tyne Castle and that's always a bandbox tight, you know, a lot of chaos, a lot of randomness that can um you know creep into the game uh but i you know again th- this is the kind of game where i'm not that worried about um meaning that it, it, particularly with the shift that we've made if we stick with it meaning if we stick with kind of 4231 or 433 with Ida and we kind of build around him um with the way that we've done in the last one and a half games and you know uh, relative to the rest of the games, I think hearts are not as as good as as their table uh, position suggests. And um, but the, the the qualifier there is they still have Shanklin, right? So I'm <laughs> he could still score two goals, and you know if Hart comes out with a ninja kick on a, a through ball and <laughs> gets a red card, right? So there there's still a lot of variance built in here, but we we should be able to create chances against them uh, quite a bit and. You know, so it's one of those games where I, you know, we could win 3-2 or 4-2, that kind of thing, is kind of how I'm thinking about it. How are you feeling ahead of it, Alan? Like James, I'm no, I'm no more or less anxious about this game than any other game, in, in all honesty. Um, mainly because, as I say, I think there's there's so many performance variables in how Celtic play. It almost doesn't matter who we play. We we might be brilliant. We might be awful. We might sort of mutt, muddle along somewhere in between. Probably be one or the other in either half, <laughs> the way things have been going. Um yeah, and I agree. I agree. Hearts, hearts. Uh, I've got an, an almost remarkable level of of expected goals against underperformance in terms of. I think they're conceding one goal a game, but they should be conceding one and a half, which is huge, right? So, <laughs> so I don't know what's been going on there. I don't know if Clark has been exceptional or whether you know the opposition finishing has been dreadful, um, or, or or what. I'm not sure. I don't follow their games that closely enough. And more, more of the latter. Almost a half a goal a game on bad finishing by the opposition. 
Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, you know, Celtic in theory, have, and, and as we, as they found out at Ibrox, where I think they lost five goals off of 1.5 XG that the, the, the home team produced. So, you know, uh, that, that that sort of thing, they're kind of due to ha- have, ha- have, ha- have had happen to them, really. Um, whether it will happen against Celtic, we, we, we don't know. But so, yeah, they're not they're not nearly as good as the t- perhaps the table suggests, I would say. So in that sense, um, yeah, it's going to be, a, listen, but it's going to be because it's un- unlike when they go to Ibrox, you know that Hearts will be trying to be the best version of themselves when they play Celtic at home, as, as they normally are, and that will be, it will be, rambunctious and it will be physical and, and, and all that so um, yeah it, it will be tough but um, I, th- I think what I'll, what you can say is that you know Celtic are as much as the the attacking coherence and some of the defensive weaknesses are absolutely there and uh, you know the, the, the team at least is marching together right the, the, the divisions at Celtic are, are off the park not, not on the park or in the dressing room uh, and around the manager and the players and the coaches and all that sort of thing. That's the important thing. So, you know, that 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 I think counts for, for a lot in terms of at least giving you the, the best fighting chance uh, for these kind of tougher away games. But I think I saw that uh, Rolls, who's probably their best defender, may well miss the game and, and the other defenders, especially Kent, are, are, are not good. So, um, or is it Kent, sorry, that's going to miss the game? Yeah, and Rolls can be... Really bad, actually. So, you know that again. That probably helps Celtic in that in that sense. And I think you know they they are at least what I will say about Hearts is they will they do to to a, to a greater extent than anyone else in the league do try and play football a little bit, do try and get the ball down, do play less long balls than a lot of teams do. So, um, their issue might be uh, especially because of their relative lack of pace in midfield. Just you know, can Celtic transition and break on them quickly? And I think that would be the the bit I'll be looking to see because our counter pressing has been pretty good actually. Yeah, well, fingers crossed um, we come away from this game with a win. We'll be coming back to this game and looking back and analyzing it uh, on the show next week. So make sure to subscribe on YouTube if you want to get that, or you can get us on podcast as well. Anything else before we finish up? The only other thing I had was, uh, you know, an obvious one, but uh, just touch upon the importance of Carter Vickers returning and, hopefully staying fit. I, 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 you know, just again, to my eye, he looks like he's not quite back up to a hundred percent or anywhere near it. Um, so hopefully, you know, that's an arc that he's going to get better, um, uh, fitness wise and, and just sharpness wise. Uh, cause that, that, you know, would be a huge, particularly with this pivot in theoretically, if we are pivoting more towards, uh, the horseshoe, so to speak and control, um, you know, that he could be a huge factor. Uh, so that's again another another one on the margins that that's a you know very very important mm-hmm. all right that's where we'll leave the show then today i hope you enjoyed the saturday special on the huddle breakdown if you did be sure to hit the like button and leave a comment as well you, uh, we what, mr producer were you, you going to get it get get this out quick now since you know we did this late in the week or are you gonna you offer a three martini lunch on a saturday mm-hmm. how, how fast are we going to get this out well, I, I, I thankfully live a very boring life, so I will be editing this straight away afterwards and uh, getting it uploaded, yeah. All right, great. Thank All right. you. All right, thanks, guys. Chat is there.